Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. We love having new medical students join our team. If you're interested in hosting an episode for Spoonful of Sugar, please visit spoonfulofsugar.org and you can reach out through the contact page. If you're interested in being part of our student board and engaging in an amazing leadership opportunity to actually have a role in producing the next season of Spoonful of Sugar, please visit spoonfulofsugar.org apply and find more information there. In the meantime, let me introduce you to our newest team member, Lexi Sharan. She's a third-year medical student at Western University of Health Sciences. Hope you enjoy her episode on hepatitis. Hey, future doctors. Thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Lexi Sharan, and I'm a third-year medical student at Western University of Health Sciences in Oregon. Today, we'll be covering viral hepatitis. So we will cover hepatitis A, hepatitis B, C, D, and E. It's important to remember that these viruses are similar and that they are hepatitis-causing viruses, but they do have different modes of transmission, different viral structures, different clinical pictures. So we will want to go through each of these to best prepare you for test day. My goal is to hit the highest yield topics on viral hepatitis, including serology, which I always found to be pretty tricky. Before I get into it, I just want to say that you're doing an awesome job wherever you are. If you're using this episode for review before an in-house exam or before boards, just know that you're not alone and that you will definitely get through this. Okay, so first, I'm going to go back to some basics and do a bit of some high-yield rapid review of the viral structures of each hepatitis virus. So do you remember which one uses reverse transcriptase? So that's hepatitis B virus. Remember that hepatitis B is unique because it is an enveloped, partially double-stranded, partially single-stranded DNA virus. The fact that it's a DNA virus makes it unique since other hepatitis viruses we will talk about are going to be RNA viruses. And if you have a hard time remembering which one is DNA, just remember that hepatitis B is part of the hepadenoviridae family, and DNA is in the word hepadenoviridae, so it's HEPA DNA virus. Do you know which hepatitis virus requires hepatitis B to infect the host? So that's hepatitis D. So remember, hepatitis D is a satellite virus of hepatitis B. So essentially what that means is hepatitis D is actually a defective virus and it needs hepatitis B to replicate. And this is actually the main thing you want to remember about hepatitis D, and we'll discuss this later in the episode. So this is kind of a tricky one, but do you remember which hepatitis virus can undergo frequent mutations? That's going to be hepatitis C. And do you remember what causes hepatitis C to undergo so many mutations? That's because hepatitis C lacks 3' prime to 5' prime proofreading exonuclease activity, which essentially leads to antigenic variation of the hepatitis C envelope proteins. 
So because of this, the virus can remain ahead of your immune system, which will be important in our clinical discussion later on. So again, just to review the structure of hepatitis C, hepatitis C is part of the Flaviviridae family, and it is a positive sense, single-stranded RNA virus that is enveloped. Do you remember which hepatitis viruses are non-enveloped? So that's going to be hepatitis A and hepatitis E. And the important things we're going to want to remember about these two viruses is that hepatitis A is part of the Picornaviridae family and hepatitis E is part of the Hepaviridae family. Both hepatitis A and E are going to be positive sense, single-stranded RNA viruses that are non-enveloped. So just to review all these high-yield facts again before we move on, remember that hepatitis A is part of the Picornaviridae family and hepatitis E is part of the Hepaviridae family. Both are positive sense, single-stranded RNA viruses that are non-enveloped. And moving on to hepatitis C, remember hepatitis C is part of what family? So hepatitis C is part of the Flaviviridae family, and that is also going to be positive sense, single-stranded RNA that is enveloped. So hepatitis A, E, and C are all positive sense, single-stranded RNA, but hepatitis A and hepatitis E are naked while hepatitis C is enveloped. And we'll continue to review this as we go on. And then lastly, remember hepatitis B is part of the Hepadenavirde family, HEPA DNA virus. So it's a DNA virus that is enveloped. So now we're going to get into the different modes of transmission. Do you remember how hepatitis B is transmitted? So I remember that hepatitis B stands for blood, bedroom, and birthing. And that's actually from first aid. So if you think back to what we just talked about, can you remember if hepatitis B is enveloped or is it naked? So hepatitis B is enveloped. And this is really important because if you think back to your microbiome lectures, Enveloped viruses are more unstable in the environment because the viral coat can be penetrated by disinfectants and UV light. So if the virus is not able to survive a long time in the outside environment, it's going to need to be transmitted in a more direct or a more intimate way. So that would be blood, body fluids, or vertical transmission from the mother to the baby. So just to be repetitive about it, tell me what are the Bs associated with hepatitis B? So hepatitis B stands for blood, bedroom, and birthing. So blood, pretty self-explanatory. Bedroom is referring to the possible sexual transmission through body fluids. And then birthing stands for the fact that hepatitis B can be transmitted from the mother to the baby. 
And lastly, can you remember if hepatitis B has a vaccine or not? So yes, hepatitis B does have a vaccine. Do you remember which hepatitis virus is a satellite virus of hepatitis B? Yeah, so that's the one that we just talked about a few minutes ago. That's hepatitis D. So hepatitis D is actually defective and it needs hepatitis B to replicate. And I once heard hepatitis D is dumb. So D for dumb. Um, And I guess it's dumb because it needs hepatitis B. So use that if it's helpful. So if you become infected with hepatitis B and hepatitis D at the same time, it's actually quite hard to tell apart just from a hepatitis B infection. However, if we already have hepatitis B and we get hepatitis D, um, it's actually called a super infection, which is an extreme version of hepatitis. So can you try and think of the ways hepatitis D would be transmitted? So yeah, if hepatitis D needs hepatitis B, then it's going to be transmitted through similar means, um, i.e. blood and bedroom. Can you remember if hepatitis D has a vaccine? So no, it doesn't. But if you remember, obviously hepatitis D needs hepatitis B, So prevention of hepatitis B with the hepatitis B vaccine will also protect against hepatitis D. So do you remember how hepatitis C is transmitted? So I remember that hepatitis C is transmitted through means of circulation. So C for circulation, like IV drug use, needle sharing, and blood transfusions. And so similar to hepatitis B, it is an enveloped virus, which means that it's not very stable in the environment. Um, And because of that, can you remember what type of contact it will need for transmission? Right. So because it's enveloped, it's going to need close and intimate contact. However, unlike hepatitis B, We don't really think of hepatitis C with sexual contact as much, but more so with needle sharing and blood transfusions. Can you remember if hepatitis C has a vaccine? No, there is no vaccine. Okay. Can you remember how hepatitis A is transmitted? So hepatitis A is transmitted through the fecal-oral route, and what helps me kind of remember hepatitis A is I remember that A stands for anal. So hepatitis A is transmitted fecal-orally. So because of that, we're going to see probably some question stems that mention contaminated food or water, and the question stem might mention that the patient recently traveled to a low resource region, although it's important to note that there have been multiple hepatitis A outbreaks in the United States as well. 
So can you remember if hepatitis A is enveloped or is it non-enveloped? Unlike hepatitis B and hepatitis C, hepatitis A is naked and it's acid stable. So it's going to be resistant to harsh conditions like stomach acid. And that's kind of another way to remember that it's transmitted fecal orally. So because it's not enveloped, it can last a longer time in the environment, which makes sense when you think about the question stem maybe mentioning contaminated food or contaminated water. And does hepatitis A have a vaccine? So yes, hepatitis A does have a vaccine. Do you know which hepatitis virus is most similar to hepatitis A in terms of its transmission? So that's hepatitis E. Remember, both hepatitis A and E are both transmitted fecal orally. So I kind of remember that A and E can kind of be lumped together because I remember A-E-I-O-U. I just remember the vowels and I just kind of lump A and E together as being fecal oral. And first aid also has a memory tool that says vowels hit your bowels. And so that can be an additional way to help you kind of remember that. And remember that both with hepatitis A and E, the question stem might mention a patient who has traveled to a low-resource region. Okay, so that was kind of a lot. So I do want to do a quick review on transmission. So how is hepatitis B transmitted? So hepatitis B stands for blood, body fluids, and baby. And then remember hepatitis D can kind of be lumped in there as well, except mostly hepatitis D, we're going to think about blood and body fluids. Okay, how is hepatitis C transmitted? So C stands for circulation, like IV drug use, needle sharing, and blood transfusions. How is hepatitis A and E transmitted? So remember, we're going to think about vowels hit your bowels. And so hepatitis A and E are both going to be transmitted fecal orally. Which of the hepatitis viruses do we have vaccines for? So we have vaccines for hepatitis B and hepatitis A. And then remember that hepatitis B vaccines should also be protective against hepatitis D. Now we're going to move on to the clinical presentations of each hepatitis virus. And I think it's easiest to split clinical presentations into acute versus chronic infections. Do you remember if hepatitis A causes acute or chronic hepatitis? So hepatitis A will mostly cause an acute and self-limiting hepatitis. And I remember hepatitis A, A for acute. What are the symptoms associated with acute hepatitis? So the patient will initially likely experience diarrhea that may progress to more of the classic acute hepatitis symptoms such as dark urine, pale stools, fever, nausea, weakness, and yellowing of skin and eyes. 
And remember that acute hepatitis can lead to cholestasis or decreased bile production. So bilirubin cannot be excreted in the normal way. And that is essentially what leads up to the buildup of bilirubin, which is what causes the pale stools, dark urine, and jaundice. However, patients may most often just experience diarrhea without any of those additional symptoms. Do you know which lab values can be used to see acute hepatitis? So since the virus is damaging hepatocytes, there will be a release of aminotransferases from the damaged cells. So that would be both alanine aminotransferase and aspartate aminotransferase, so ALT and AST. Can you remember the patient population that we would be really worried about if they had hepatitis E? That would be pregnant individuals. So similar to hepatitis A, hepatitis E can normally be acute um, and is pretty self-limiting. So with hepatitis E, you could also maybe see the increased AST, ALT, possible jaundice. However, hepatitis E has a really high rate of mortality in pregnant individuals due to the development of fulminant hepatitis, which is essentially a severe hepatitis that can lead to necrosis of the liver parenchyma. Now, can you remember which hepatitis causes chronic hepatitis? So that's hepatitis C. And I remember hepatitis C, C for chronic. And the majority of patients with acute hepatitis C will actually be asymptomatic until they later develop cirrhosis from the long-standing inflammation. The key to hepatitis C is this chronic nature. So hepatitis C virus is the hepatitis virus that is most likely to progress to chronic hepatitis, cirrhosis, and can you remember what else it might cause? That would be hepatocellular carcinoma, and that's pretty much due just from the constant inflammation. Can you think of which hepatitis virus can be both acute or chronic? So the hepatitis B virus can cause both acute and chronic infections. And I just remember hepatitis B, B for both. So hepatitis B can end up causing an acute infection in a immunocompetent host, or it can cause a chronic infection in a immunocompromised host. The acute hepatitis B infection is usually self-limiting with most patients recovering fully. However, a minority of those cases do progress to a chronic infection, which can lead to long-term complications like cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. It is important to know that hepatitis B progresses to chronic hepatitis less so than hepatitis C. Can you remember the population of patients that would have the worst prognosis with hepatitis B? So that would be neonates. And remember that one of the Bs of hepatitis B is birthing. 
now to just do a bit of a review before we move on. Do you remember which hepatitis viruses can cause chronic hepatitis? So that's hepatitis C, C for chronic, hepatitis B, B for both acute and chronic, and then hepatitis D. Which are more likely to have symptoms including diarrhea and will more likely represent an acute illness? That's hepatitis A and hepatitis E. Can you remember one of the outcomes of having chronic hepatitis? Right, so there's a lot of them. But remember that the chronic inflammation of the liver can often lead to hepatocellular carcinoma. So now we're going to move on to hepatitis serology. I always found hepatitis serology to be pretty difficult and confusing to remember, but heavy repetition and breaking it down just to the basics always helped me remember and understand just a little bit better. So before we jump in, I want to do a quick review of some basic topics just to get us warmed up a bit. And I really think that if you can just slow down when you read the questions and think about the basics, you should be able to get through it okay. So can you tell me the difference between an antigen and an antibody? Generally, an antigen is something that induces an immune response. We normally think of this as being part of a virus or a bacteria or just something that's infectious that it's introduced to your body that gets your immune system's attention. And then an antibody is a protein produced by your immune system that attacks and fights off the offending agent. So in this case, the antigen is part of the hepatitis virus, and then our body is responding by creating antibodies. So now that we remember that antibodies are produced by our immune system, can you remember the difference between IgM and IgG antibodies? So remember, IgM is part of the primary immune response, which means it's the very first type of antibody that your body makes when it encounters an infection. And then IgG is an antibody that is made in the secondary response to an antigen, so later on in the infection. Now that we have reviewed these concepts, let's jump into the serologic markers for hepatitis. And again, just to say, serologic markers is just another way of saying the identification of antibodies or antigens in the serum. First, let's talk about serology of hepatitis A, since this one is a bit more straightforward. What do you think an anti-hepatitis A virus IgM antibody would suggest in a patient. So that would suggest an acute infection. Remember, IgM is part of the primary immune response. So that would make sense in an acute response, IgM would be the antibody we would see. So if we saw anti-hepatitis A virus IgG antibodies, what would that mean? So that would suggest a prior infection or a prior vaccination because remember, there's a vaccine for hepatitis A. Remember, IgG is produced later on in the infection and can be detected years after exposure. 
So those are the main serologic markers for hepatitis A. Hopefully that's pretty straightforward. So just either IgM antibodies or IgG antibodies. Now we're going to move on to hepatitis B serology. So with hepatitis B serology, we're going to talk about each marker separately, and then we will put together the bigger picture at the end with review questions. At first, you might be wondering why there are just so many of these markers, or at least that's what I wondered. Um, But it's because your body is mounting this immune response against the hepatitis virus. So there's going to be different serologic markers depending on the different stage. So we need to have a way to know if the patient is infected or not. And to know that for sure, we need to essentially cast a wide net. So each of these are important if we want to make the correct diagnosis. So first we have the hepatitis B surface antigen. And the hepatitis B surface antigen is going to indicate a hepatitis B infection. Next, we're going to have the hepatitis B surface antibody. So the hepatitis B surface antibody is going to be the antibody to the hepatitis B surface antigen. And again, I'm just trying to be pretty repetitive with this. So the hepatitis B surface antibody is going to indicate immunity to the virus either by vaccination or infection. Sometimes the hepatitis B surface antibody is not detectable until weeks or months after the hepatitis B surface antigen has disappeared. And so this is important because this is what we call the window period of the infection. The hepatitis B core antigen is the antigen associated with the core of the hepatitis B virus. And this demonstrates exposure to the actual virus. So now we have the hepatitis B core antibodies. So remember, if you've encountered the core, you have encountered the actual virus. So the IgM, hepatitis B core antibody, will indicate a recent or an acute infection. And then the IgG, hepatitis B core antibody, will indicate a chronic infection. And this might be the sole positive marker during the window period, which is why it's so important. Okay, so that was a lot. And I always wondered, what's the difference between the surface markers and the core markers? Like, why do we need both? So you would not have the hepatitis B core antigen or antibody if you had only been vaccinated because the vaccination is related to the surface proteins and not the core of the virus. I think about this as being because if your body has seen the core of the virus, your body had to have broken down the virus and everything, which obviously doesn't happen when you're just vaccinated Because like I had mentioned, the vaccination only has to do with the surface of the virus. Okay, so we just have a few more. So the hepatitis B E antigen is secreted by hepatocytes into the circulation. So the hepatitis B E antigen is not actually part of the hepatitis 
B virus. And this is going to indicate an active, acute viral replication, and therefore it's going to mean high transmissibility. And so when you hear a hepatitis B E antigen, you're going to think high transmissibility. And I kind of just remember it like hepatitis B E antigen, like E, I might be transmitting the virus. Um, So yeah, use that if you want. And then we're going to have the hepatitis B E antibody. And so that's going to be the antibody to the hepatitis B E antigen. And this is going to indicate a low transmissibility. So just to cover those two, hepatitis B E antigen is high transmissibility. And then the hepatitis B E antibody is low transmissibility. Okay, you made it this far, so we're almost done. I do want to do a review of the serology just to hopefully put everything together into a larger picture. So do you remember how we test someone for hepatitis A? So that's going to be either IgM antibodies or IgG antibodies. IgM would indicate an acute infection and IgG would suggest a prior infection or a prior vaccination because again, remember there's a vaccine for hepatitis A. So now moving on to hepatitis B. What serologic marker would someone have if they were vaccinated against hepatitis B? So they would have the hepatitis B surface antibody, and that would be a marker of immunity. Can you remember which marker would tell us if someone was having an acute versus chronic hepatitis B infection? So that would be the hepatitis B core antibody. So the IgM would indicate an acute infection and the IgG would indicate a chronic infection. Remember, the core antibody indicates that you have been infected with the actual virus. Which marker would you look at if you wanted to know if someone has a high or low infectivity? So the hepatitis E antigen indicates high infectivity, and the hepatitis E antibody indicates low infectivity. Remember, E infectivity. Which marker will be present during the window period? So that's going to be the IgM hepatitis B core antibody that would be present during the window period. So questions will often give you multiple serologic markers in a question, but just look at each marker separately to kind of break it down, and that should help you answer correctly. Okay, so you made it. That wraps up this episode on viral hepatitis. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. I truly know how difficult this topic can be, and I just threw a lot of information at you, but I really hope this review helped. I know that I listen to a lot of Spoonful of Sugar episodes two, sometimes three times, so don't be afraid to come back to this episode or any other episode multiple times. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the links for this episode. Medical school is hard, but you aren't alone. Good luck with studying, and remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down. 